Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Hey, everybody. How you doing? This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening, wherever you happen to be. Today on the program, my guest is Bruce Wagner, author of Roar, American Master. I see my life through my books, that I have only existed through my books. That's how I see it. I've met people that have led to me far more interesting lives, and my life has been completely in my head and is becoming more and more that way. So that's how I see it. You know what I mean? A lot of solitude and obsessive craft work and certain aspirations toward the sacred. All right. That was Bruce Wagner, author of Roar, American Master. The Oral Biography of Roger Orr, a novel. So this is a fictional oral history of a mythic, Promethean, American cultural figure named Roger Orr. I think that's the easiest way to sum it up. Roger Orr is a grand creation. In the mind of Bruce Wagner, he is a man who is at once black, white, well, he's male and female, so he's not just a man. He's a comedian, he's a filmmaker, he's a dermatologist. He's an author, a spiritual seeker. All of the above and more, and all at very high levels. 
Roger Orr is a character who embodies a certain era in our cultural history, a recent era, with its highs and its lows and its excesses and indulgences and absurdities and its enduring obsession with fame. This is a, what do you say? It's a sprawling novel that tells the story of an entire life and a life across generations. And I gotta say, it does so with incredibly impressive depth and energy and with a truly astounding level of cultural knowledge. Bruce Wagner has an encyclopedic mind for this sort of thing. For entertainment culture, for Hollywood history, for all sorts of stuff. He's a polymathic mind. And there is a strong element of satire in this book and in Bruce Wagner's work generally. But to simply think of Roar or any of Wagner's work as, as only satire is, I think, to misperceive it and to minimize it and to f- fail to see what he's really up to. Bruce Wagner is a a very serious and very intelligent and wickedly funny writer who happens to write about the people who inhabit Los Angeles, mostly as, I think, an accident of fate. And I think he would put it this way because Los Angeles is where he's from. He grew up here. It's his home turf. He went to Beverly Hills High School. You'll hear us talk about that. And he was born into this and really in, in a lot of ways didn't have any choice but to write about it, if that's a way of putting it. So I feel overdue in having him on this program. I'm very excited about today's episode and my conversation with Bruce Wagner, which is coming up momentarily. Today's episode is brought to you by William Morrow, publisher of the novel The Thing in the Snow by Sean Adams. The Thing in the Snow is a thought-provoking and dryly funny novel that is equal parts deadpan satire and psychological thriller It is unsettling, it's funny, it's a little scary, it's a great send-up of workplace culture, it's all of these things, and it's an unpredictable narrative that keeps you turning pages. I just finished it, I just interviewed Sean Adams on this show. The Thing in the Snow is the January book club pick, and it's out there now from William Morrow. Go get your copy, it's a perfect time of year to read The Thing in the Snow, right? at least here in the Northern Hemisphere in the dead of winter. One more time, it's called The Thing in the Snow by Sean Adams, available from William Morrow. So The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive of this show, more than 800 episodes and counting, is made available to listeners free of charge. There are no paywalls on this show by design. It's a listener-supported show. That's the gambit here. I offer it up to you guys without any barriers, and I'm hoping that enough of you will enjoy the show enough to support it, and you can do that for as little as $1 a month. I've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to support this show for as little as $1 a month. You can help keep this show going. I hope you'll do that over at patreon.com slash other pod. It's kind of a sliding scale situation based on whatever you can swing. So a month, $3, 5, 10, 20, whatever it is. And as you move up the scale, you can get merch, t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a book club subscription, all that stuff at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. I do a weekly email newsletter. So if you want to sign up for that, it's free. It goes out once a week. 
I will remind you or update you on the latest episode of the show or the latest episodes. I will share with you some links to things that I have been reading and finding interesting or funny or both. It's essentially an enumerated list, this newsletter. It's me just sharing stuff. And it only goes out on Wednesdays. And if you want that, you can sign up over at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in both places. Don't forget to rate and review this show if you're out there listening and enjoying the program. It really helps if you rate it and review it wherever you listen. So if you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever it is, rate the show. If it's possible to review the show, write a little review. It helps the show algorithmically. The Other People podcast has a YouTube channel. Did you know that? That's been around for a while. The entire archive of this program is up on YouTube. And in recent weeks, I've started doing video. So now you can watch these interviews on the Other People YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy. And when you find the channel, hit the subscribe button. It's free. Likewise, the Other People podcast now has a presence on TikTok. I'm towing those dangerous waters. I don't know what's going on, but I'm posting clips, highlights from the video on TikTok. So if you want to see the highlights, if you're a highlights person, you can watch the highlights on the other people TikTok feed. You can also do that on the other people Instagram feed. The show has a Twitter feed as well, at other PPL. So follow the show on social media. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Send word, say something. And last but not least, if you want to read my novel, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's out there now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. I think the audiobook is on sale like 50% off until the end of January. So just go to my Twitter feed and you can find uh, a link. I think it's in there somewhere. Search for the tweet. I posted a link to the page where you can get the ebook or the audiobook for 50% off. Again, the novel is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So today's guest is Bruce Wagner, author of Roar, American Master, the oral biography of Roger Orr, a novel. It is available now from Arcade Publishing. Bruce Wagner has written, I think, a dozen books and bestsellers, including the famous Cell Phone Trilogy, which includes uh, a novel called I'm Losing You, which was a Penn USA finalist, another called I'll Let You Go, and another called Still Holding. His other books include Dead Stars, The Empty Chair, and the Penn Faulkner finalist entitled Chrysanthemum Palace. Bruce Wagner wrote the screenplay for the David Cronenberg film Maps to the Stars, for which Julianne Moore won the Best Actress Award at the Cannes Film Festival back in 2014. Bruce has written essays and articles for a variety of publications, including the New York Times, Art Forum, and The New Yorker, and he has done a lot of work as well in film and television. Such an honor and so much fun meeting Bruce Wagner, talking with him about this new novel. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Bruce Wagner, and his new book, One More Time, is called Roar, American Master. It's impossible really to talk about without a, a very long-term interest that I've had in the genre of oral history. Oral history is, is a bit of a throwaway genre. It's compelling, it's, it's 
entertaining, it's captivating, but often it's beach reading or bathroom reading. You dip in, you dip out. And I'm a a long-term fan of it, particularly of uh, the Gene Stein and George Plimpton uh, oral histories. West of Eden, I think, was the name of it's. It's such an awkward title. I can never quite get it right. Uh, of Gene Steins and Edie Sedgwick, etc. The Capote uh, oral history, and then more recently the Mike Nichols uh, one, and there's one on the director Robert Altman. There's many of them, and I I became a kind of student of them because it had always been in my mind to write an imaginary oral history. And what the oral history is capable of is exemplified in the work of Svetlana Alexievich, who's the the Russian writer that won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And her literature is nonfiction, which to me is a merging of the dream, the dream or the illusion of what is reality. There's a, a, a quote or an axiom among law enforcement and, and um, prosecuting attorneys that the eyewitness is, is the most fallible of all. So when you're reading oral histories, you have this fantasy that you're finally reading the absolute truth, which is as untrue as having that feeling when you're reading a biography. So I had experimented with that form, particularly in a book that I wrote called The Empty Chair, which was essentially two very long monologues, a kind of, uh, a, a definitely an oral history, but a perverse one in that it had a, a, a cast of characters of two. And so I thought to, to be able to, to paint on a much larger canvas uh, and have 400 voices, which I had, would be the challenge for me. And in, in terms of what you said about the covering se- uh, a century, which is, is true, he dies at 80, but I do get into his lineage. I wanted to mimic the form of the oral history, which often begins with lineage and things that are not so interesting for the reader, but do serve a purpose because ultimately the dramatic episodes to come, which in American oral histories are usually immense fame and stardom followed by myriad hospitalizations for psychiatric (laughs) illnesses, for physical ailments, followed by near-death experiences, followed by a resurgence of fame, you know, the the storied second and third acts, followed by either uh, more anarchy or a kind of serenity, uh, and then death. And, and so I, I, I wanted to sink deep into the form. And in that way, I was learning about Roger Orr almost in the same at the same time the reader was in terms of my process as a writer. And you know, I've actually I'm I'm a fan of this genre too and I've toyed around a little bit as a writer with like I've always you know that's kind of an idea that I've had like oh a fake oral history would be interesting. But I found it very challenging. Uh, you're limited. You're really constrained by that form in terms of, you know, keeping readers oriented, keeping the story moving and coherent. Did you find yourself like with a steep learning curve or was it something that you had internalized enough that you kind of intuited your way through it? 
Well, the the human voice for me is 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 almost paramount. So the speed with which I wrote this book came because a lot of the ligaments and connective tissue that are necessary in the writing of a novel were eliminated. They were deleted or erased. So I simply could glory in the vocalizations of of the characters. And, you know, I've compared it to the the ketamine experience. When you go down the K-hole, you know, one of the, the things about ketamine is that if you're in a place that you are uncomfortable with, or or a place that you are uh, rhapsodic about, those things go away after a short period of time. With the uh, the metaphor of a many man a many roomed mansion uh, in ke- with ketamine, it's the same with an oral history. You slash the reader may not be particularly enthralled by the voice of of someone, whether that person was a friend of Rogers, a critic, a lover, uh, a sister, a brother, an enemy, but you are quickly on to the next voice. So that was something that helped me tremendously, but I was extremely challenged. I've compared it to climbing Everest because I knew, I think, at least my unconscious knew how impossible this task would be. And I thought at first I would do something more akin to uh, Shouts and Murmurs in The New Yorker, you know, an extended sort of parody of the form. But that same part of me, whether unconscious or not, knew that that would be a cheat. That would be lazy, you know. So I, I had to fool myself uh, and, 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 and tell myself that I was going to near the base camp of this mountaineering enterprise and just hang out there rather than try the ascent, you know. But um, as I got deeper in, it became more apparent to me that I had to ascend, you know, I had to reach the top of the peak, whether I was frostbitten or or near death and it became more imperative that that I I I do that and the other the other part of this is that at the end Roger or American Master is a full blown novel and I did subvert the form at the end because I didn't want the reader to feel that I was doing a parody of the form, as complex and nuanced as this book is, one could still regard it that way if I ended traditionally the funeral and then a kind of poetic or quasi-poetic epilogue of various people that knew him making comments that that are abstract and and kind of we fade out. You know, that that would be the typical form of an oral history with an index. So, of course, I do not have an index because an index for me would have signaled parody of, of oral history form. So by the end, this, this book ends in a kind of, it breaks the fourth wall and becomes a kind of stream of consciousness and purely uh, novelistic. Were there particular challenges 
that you found in the work? Like you said, kind of, you said something about speed. Did you write this quickly? Because it's a really sprawling book. It would be impressive if you wrote it fast. I did. And it was rather agonizing. You know, I, I, I did certain, I, I did a, a kind of a trick. You know, you've been doing this as long as I have. You, you make use of as many tricks that you've learned. And what I did is I divided the book into five books, each representing 15 years. And then there's a kind of epilogue. There's a prologue as well. But I felt that if each chapter of each of those books was 12 to 20 pages, uh, I didn't want to go past 20, a 20-page 20 chapter. So this at least gave me something foundational that allowed me to proceed, you know, because I think otherwise I would have been uh, dead in the water. I would have been paralyzed. It was just too heroic a thing for me to attempt to do. And that was the biggest challenge. Obviously, what happens in each 15-year segment, each near generation, and then of course, how to make everything tie together so the reader isn't just reading a, a a kind of random potpourri of comments, which would have been closer to the lazier method uh, of of going for shouts and, and murmurs and something that that uh, gave me the leeway of high comedy. Another thing that was great about this form is um, Stephen Fry pointed it out because. We did a, an audio book where we had 20 actors reading all of the parts uh, of the book. And Stephen Fry said that this form somehow allowed me, which is something I knew, but until someone else made the observation, uh, it didn't really uh, come home. I was able to do high comedy, black, the blackest satire, next to very simple and poetic, demotic language, everyday language, uh, and observations. There's a, a, a review of a book that Roger Orr wrote in in this novel that I that I wrote by Toni Morrison for the New York Times. It was read by Deborah Eisenberg, the writer, who's married to Wally Shawn. Wally is also in the book and reads himself in the audiobook and it's enormously dense and complex and then there's the groundskeeper at a cemetery his remarks which of course are polar opposite of hers so that was that was a revelation to me that i did not have to maintain a consistency of tone that the form was very expansive and very generous it would not affect the end result. So it would be as if I had written a, a, to use your word, a sprawling novel that was able to contain multitudes of not just voices, but of literary forms. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free.
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, you know, it may, like it struck me as I was reading, like the couple of challenges that I imagine you faced were trying to differentiate the voices, since there are so many, to make each one distinct. And then as you're moving through the narrative, moving through the life story of Roger Orr, and the details pile up. I could imagine a revision process happening maybe in real time or after the fact where you had to kind of go back and tie threads together because new things emerge as the story progresses. Did, did that happen or is that not the case? Um, it didn't happen too much. You know, I'm with my books, this book was published by Arcade and it was the first time I worked with Arcade. And I told the editor I was working with, Lily Golden, that my method is that when I finish a manuscript, it's it's not going to be perfect, but it will be probably, even if it's a 500-page manuscript, plus or minus three pages, my corrections. But my corrections within the body of the work paragraph sentences for felicity for grace thousands and thousands upon uh, uh, maybe tens of thousands of changes and i was true to my word and she had forgotten of course by the time i turned the book in <laughs> the caveat and um was startled but they were great at arcade and i would say only occasionally something goes south when you're halfway through or three quarters of the way through that, that necessitates revisions uh, earlier in the text. For the most part, no. How long did it take you to write it? I think, you know, it's a difficult question because I would say that the bulk of this book was probably 90 days. Wow. Yeah. And, and that means, Brad, that waking up at sometimes 4.30 in the morning, working for a few hours at home, then going to a club that I like to work at, wearing compression socks because I was sitting so for such long periods of time, coming home and, and, and perhaps working again or just turning on Deadliest Catch or the Kardashians, just something to shut my head off. And it was really sustained. And that was, you know, any writer that that, uh, doesn't tell you that the actual writing of a book is nightmarish, I'm I'm very suspect of, you know. (laughs) So, uh, and it goes on and on, you know, once you finish... There's another six months of, of hardcore corrections, multiple full manuscript corrections. So it doesn't seem like it's going to have an end. And then it, it, seemingly it, it, it doesn't have an end because there's always uh, going to be typos. And, um, but I'm not one that, that 
has regrets. You know, I never turn a book in, even though I turn it in prematurely that, that I, that I don't feel in my heart and my gut isn't um, everything or close to everything that I wanted to do. I'm going to read a quote uh, of you (laughs) talking about your own work. And uh, I I just want to hear you respond to it because I feel like this describes uh, Roar pretty well. You said uh, back in the day, quote, all of my work is interested in merging opposites and extremity. And that really cut through for me because of the nature of Roger Orr as a character, the life story that you're telling here, and maybe Hollywood in, in general, um, you know, high and low culture, uh, artistic ambition uh, versus corporate capitalism, failure and success, all of these themes that are kind of run throughout your work. But do you feel like you agree with yourself? <laughs> Yeah, uh, I I do. the The theater that I work in, the stage, I should say, are opposites: fame and anonymity, enormous wealth and and poverty, physical prowess and physical disability. These are the things that uh, are stimulating to me because the the universe is essentially for me constructed in that the masculine the feminine i know that may sound controversial at this point you know and speaking of which i roger orr late in life you know i i established that roger orr never felt comfortable in a, a male body and he has long had a fantasy of having gender identity surgery and becomes a great friend of Jan Morris, who was uh, the wonderful writer and one of the earliest and and most well-known men who had a trans feminine surgery. But Roger Orr somehow um, doesn't have the guts to do it, decides to do it in his mid to late 60s. And then decides to reverse it and it wasn't you know that's a nuance that will be overlooked because he becomes he's always was spiritual roger and he becomes more so as he uh, approaches the end of his life and be and and is contemptuous of himself that he be, he was so focused on gender and he he feels that he didn't make a mistake by having that surgery, but wants to reverse that surgery and winds up partially doing that while letting the world think he fully reversed the surgery because he wants to enter that world that the Buddhists call the third gender, that, that place that we are going where there is no gender. So he, he felt almost embarrassed that he'd been so consumed by this idea, which became a kind of socio-cultural, political football, in a sense, of, of exchanging one gender for another, when the reality was, at the, at, at the end of his life, he wanted uh, to have no gender at all. Yeah, I mean, this is like, I, maximalism is a word that occurred to me as I was reading this book. Like, it's a really over-the-top life story. And yet, 
I, there are moments at which I found myself like having to check myself and be like, okay, this is, this isn't real. Like that it, it, it tricks you. And that's a testament to the, to the writing and to the, uh, I don't know, to your cultural knowledge, which feels pretty vast to me. Yeah. Uh, But you talk about Roger Orr's, you know, the, the extremes and the opposites and his, uh, his journey with gender, but he's also got this incredible origin story as the son, biological son of a famous black singer and a a Klansman, a KKK. Yeah. Who raped, raped her in 1940. Yeah. Right. Right. So, I mean, you know, this guy, and then he goes on to be, become adopted by this wealthy family, but it's just an, it's an incredible story and it's all, it almost is beyond belief. And yet I believed it. Well, the, the, you know, even to this day, there's hundreds of footnotes in this book. And um, when we were doing the audio book, well, to, I I can still look at those footnotes and I have to think hard to know if they're actually referencing a, a real book or a real interview or if, if they're completely made up. In the audiobook reading, we had actors, uh, I had an actor tell me that they looked up the character they were reading on Wikipedia and didn't find them there. And that was just a, a signal for me that that character was not real. I had a close friend of mine, and actually he wasn't the only one. Many people did not know that Ernest Hemingway had a, a um, trans feminine son, Gregory. And so they thought that was very good the way I had done that. And of course that was true. And many people thought that what I'd written about the actor Fred McMurray was true, that he was a junkie, you know, uh, uh, a, a kind of legendary heroin addict. And that was invented. So the, the idea of, uh, you know, his mantra, Roger Orr's mantra throughout the book is all is illusion. And I really do feel that now, um, you know, someone said a few years ago, Maybe it was Graydon Carter, who's also a voice in the audio book, his own voice, that irony was dead. I would now amend that to satire is dead. You know, from what you were saying a moment ago, the maximalization of it, if you were to years ago uh, talk about the Kardashians and suggest that Bruce Jenner, the Wheaties champion, the decathlon winner, was going to uh, transition to become a woman, one would say that that was farcical, that was maximalist, etc. And now, every day on the internet, there's examples of of the unthinkable or the unwritable being prosaically true, you know. So I had to really the heart of, of, of my efforts were to write a, a novel that was traditional in a sense, except told through voices, like an epistolary novel is told through letters, but in its essence, a kind of old school novel that hopefully would move people in the way that uh, people were moved by such creations, you know? I had to get out of the way of the kind of fireworks of parody and and of satire. Those things 
took a back seat to the driver, which was hopefully for me a, a full-throated, fully-dressed novel. Well, there's a line from one of your past books, I believe it's The Chrysanthemum Palace, where you say, Americans define time as the space within which one succeeds or fails. <laughs> and this is definitely a book about, a, you know, pun intended, roaring success. Like, like Roger Orr is an incredibly accomplished human being, filmmaker, songwriter, poet, uh, what am I missing? You know, there's there's so much. Dermatologist, he, 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 novelist, yeah, dermatologist. <laughs> you know, like he's just he's just a over the top success, and it really this book as a you know the satirical aspects of this book that I appreciate so much and found so funny. A lot of it has to do with I think this just ingrained sense that we all have if we've been born into this country and paid even like a modicum of attention is this cultural mythology around success and failure and how much we love to lionize success stories in America. Like mm -hmm. this, this book speaks to that so clearly and it's just so recognizable, like the ways in which like celebrity friends fawn over Roger and talk of his talent in these like magisterial terms, you know? There's more than an ounce of truth in that. And it was just so funny to see on the page. You did it so well. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, you you do, I think perhaps more than anything I've written, this book taps into the, the ether. You know, for some reason, and I, you know, it's in the, the fog of of war. I can't remember very much about the building blocks of this book. But for some reason, Roger Orr is introduced to the actor Leslie Jordan, you know, and they become lovers, which is completely improbable to uh, the uh, the friends until the friends get to get to see the two of them together. Leslie Jordan, um, for those who don't know, is uh, died maybe. Um, nine months ago, I, I can't remember, and was a, a kind of elfin queer from the South and very funny, very dear, and a, a, a kind of a TV star who acquired a huge following during lockdown and was much beloved. And I, I just, I don't know how I learned about him. He certainly wasn't on my radar. And then he actually ends the novel before the, the epilogue by talking about his, his, his husband who has just died. And then I got a, um, some emails from people saying they were so sorry to hear, for me, to hear about the death of Leslie Jordan, you know. And I, I just was so touched by that. Because I truly felt that Leslie Jordan was part of the family, you know, right. and right. and they did too, and and there was a kind of poetic beauty to to those events. Uh, certainly, it was terrible his death, but his death became part of the great fiction that our lives and deaths are. For me, it sounds narcissistic, but these are the among the many 
sort of peculiar resonances and reverberations that happen when the writer gets out of the way. I've talked about that before, that writers, I feel, do their best work when they can disappear. And you you disappear by this avoidance of self as you write. And if you've been doing it a while, your chances are either better or worse. Worse because you're enthralled by yourself at this point, but better because you have kind of a muscle memory. Uh, uh, you know what you're doing sufficiently that like a, a master woodworker, you're, you can empty your head as you carve, you know. And um, something kind of very interesting happened to me. Um, I, I underwent an identity theft uh, after I'd written the book when we were doing the audio book. Someone got a hold of everything about me and uh, tried to take money out of one of my accounts and had my address, my social security number, everything. And that, to me, was a perfect metaphor for what happened with the book. I had been this precious self, you know, Bruce Wagner slash author, was erased and up for grabs in the public domain, which is where I released my last book. I was now in the public domain, no copyrights, no legality, nothing. And uh, that was interesting to me because I wanted, you know, the the not my publisher, but the marketing people said they didn't want this book to say by Bruce Wagner. I mean, they they wanted the book to say by Bruce Wagner. I wanted it to say compiled and edited by Bruce Wagner. And finally, I got my way because Tony Lyons, uh, our fearless publisher, who's an attorney as well, said, no, 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 because these are marketing people go by whims and trends and by uh, compiled and edited by Bruce Wagner will confuse people, all this kind of nonsense. So I was effectively erased from, by definition, uh, because this book no longer said by Bruce Wagner. It said compiled and edited by. And another irony is that Sam Wasson, who's the great Hollywood historian and uh, an essayist on film, who uh, was coming out with the oral history of Hollywood at the same time as this book. Sam is in my book and in New York recorded his voice for the audiobook and and interviewed me a few days after he'd been interviewed by uh, a wonderful director. His name escapes me now as it shouldn't. Um, for his oral history. And then my former book editor, who had published 10 of my 13 novels, 10 of them, he was responsible for the compiling and editing the Paul Newman memoir that just came out. So there's- And who is this? Who is this uh, David Rosenthal. So there was Hollywood and oral history compiled and edited by Janine Basinger and Sam Wasson. Paul Newman's memoir compiled and edited by David Rosenthal and then Roar, American Master, compiled and edited by myself, you know. So it, it's, these are just the, the strange little things that, that, that pop up when, when you're, you're in the ether, you know. Well, there's, you know, there's the satirical element to the book 
and the great way that you're kind of lampooning our uh, cultural mythology, especially entertainment culture here in in Hollywood. But uh, there's also, to me, more than a whiff of uh, elegy in this book, not only the elegy for for Roar and his life that has passed, but maybe a a little bit of an elegy for uh, an era in Hollywood that is gone. like the golden age of Hollywood. He really emblemized, you know, is emblematic of so much of that. Like the story that you're telling of his life seems in a way kind of unrecognizable in a contemporary Hollywood context. It seems like something that, you know, used to happen and maybe can't anymore. Yeah. He's, um, he's, a, a, a certainly a towering figure along the lines of, of Orson Welles closer to Wells than he is to Mike Nichols, even though he began his career as a brilliant stand-up comedian, Roger Orr, releasing these basement tapes that he did when he was 14 years old. Uh, Quite a a genius in that regard. But, yeah, I I mean, oral histories, by, by definition, I suppose, you need to have a long life, which gratefully covers far more territory than this hellish moment we're living in, you know, where there is this Stalinist fervor to to destroy, to punish, to erase, to cancel. Uh, and I cover that too. Roger Orr writes a play, he, he's probably in his 70s now, called The Cancel Ward, which is drawn from Solzhenitsyn's The Cancer Ward. And I don't have much phantom nostalgia for periods of time that I'm I, that I didn't somehow embody the '40s. I was born in in '54 and really came of age in the '60s. But as you had described, this book really goes from the mid '20s, but mostly starts in 1940. And I I covered as much ground as I could using my own predilections and interests and fascinations and intrigues. And that part was fun for me. You know, it was very much fun. But it's, it is, um, it does cover so many eras that, that, that have appeal. And this era is not without uh, its appeal for me as well. Um, but I'm glad Roger died in 2018. <laughs> <laughs> before, before things really got, yeah. got dark. <laughs> yeah. So I want to shift a little bit and talk about your history uh, in this city. This is the place where you came up. You know it very well. You know, I think the early book especially, uh, you know, you've had some comparisons made to Nathaniel West, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and his Pat Hobby stories. But I'd love to hear you just talk a little bit uh, about your your personal biography. Um, yeah. Like growing, growing up in Beverly Hills and uh, dropping out of high school, right? I think yeah. I have that right. Yeah. Um, I We moved to Beverly Hills when I, was, I think I was eight years old. And I went to school with, you know, kids would come at the uh, after lunchtime still wearing the costumes that they wore for a co-starring in Bonanza 
you know what I mean? You know, uh, a television show back of in, back in the day. I went to school with Liz, Liz Taylor's kids. We lived practically next door to Broderick Crawford. Uh, we lived on the south side of Wilshire, which are the, the so-called slums of Beverly Hills. But there was, um, you know, uh, Dean Martin's son, Dino, would race by in a Ferrari while I'm in elementary school lunchtime because those kids went to a school called Rexford, which was a private school for very wealthy kids and, and kids that were having a lot of difficulties, right? And Beverly Hills back then was very much uh, a small kind of Norman Rockwell town, you know. There was a, a, a J.J. Newberry's where you could have a milkshake. There were, were a little magic shop. There was a, a place called Entres, which was one of those automated cafeterias. There were, um, the only place that survived all this is I think Nate Nell's, the delicatessen is still there. I, there's hardly any anything that's still there. And I then went to Beverly and I kind of peaked in eighth grade, you know, I was very popular. So did I. So oh, did there I. you go. I, I, I've said that before. I'm like, it was all downhill after eighth grade. Yeah, it was all downhill. <laughs> all of my friends were very wealthy. You know, I, I, no one ever came to my house because it was like a shitty little apartment in my head. But they, you'd go to their homes for sleepovers and their parents wouldn't be there. You'd be swimming at night and uh, a servant would bring out trays of food. I mean, this was like de rigueur. And I became more and more disaffected and disconnected in high school and dropped out in my junior year, worked in bookstores in Century City. This was back when there were three bookstores in Beverly Hills, three, count them. There was Hunter's, Martindale's, and um, God, Brentano's. And I worked at both of those, but I worked in Century City at Martindale's and kids would come in from school and recognize me and it would be a cognitive dissonance. Like, is this a prank? Why are you here? And then I worked for the, the two main jobs I had is the first one at 18 is I drove an ambulance at Schaefer Ambulance over on Western and Beverly Boulevard. And I did that for a year and a half. And then I drove a limousine at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And I did that for a few years. Both of those jobs were fantastic, you know, and both were the extremities we're talking about. And toward the end, there didn't seem to be much of a difference between driving a limousine and driving an ambulance for me. But I did, you know, I would drive catatonic women up to Camarillo. Uh, I would... Um, go to emergency rooms to transport people that had just shot themselves in the head to the neurological unit at the county general. And with the limousines, I would drive Audrey Hepburn, Olivia de Havilland. I would drive boxing promoters to South Central and go to speakeasies with them. Lou Rawls's mother, I think, had a speakeasy. And I, I would be the only white person, the driver, treated very well at an after-hours club called Mr. Mitch's Another World. You know, I mean, it, so I I broke free from that model, the Beverly Hills model, which was everyone went to college without, without fail. And I never <clears throat> returned to school. 
So <clears throat> I do have a somewhat of a nostalgia for that time. Some of my close friends had the same experience that I did um, going to those schools. Gavin DeBecker is one of them, who was a childhood friend of, of my dear friend Carrie Fisher, uh, Morgan Mason, James Mason's son, a lot of people that shared the same experience that I did. Um, Wait, how did you know Carrie Fisher? Carrie Fisher, I'm not sure how I met Carrie, but we became very, very close. And um, Gavin and I officiated at uh, her daughter Billy's wedding last year uh, in Mexico. And we, we, we wrote the vows. I mean, it was just a beautiful one of the most beautiful things that's ever happened to me uh, and Gavin as well. Wow. That's great. I, I yeah. didn't realize she was great. I ever think everybody universally loves Carrie Fisher. <laughs> yeah. You know, she was special. Dreaming of a better sleep. Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. So when it comes to fame, having grown up in this mix and known a lot of these people or driven them around or whatever it is, what have you learned about it? having having witnessed it at close range like what what have you learned about fame well it, like anything else it's it can become an addiction if if one doesn't at least make an effort to erase the self i was just reading a beautiful sufi story about a man who collapses in the section of a city where there are perfume makers so people rush up to him and, and, and put various different perfumes under his nose and nothing rouses him until uh, another man appears with a filthy rag and puts it under his nose and he, he, he awakens. And the man that with the filthy rag says that you must prepare yourself for the next dimension. Um, meaning death, what we call death. And he said, if you are attached to the familiar smells, the familiar sights and sounds and smells of this world, you're going to have a much more difficult time, you know. So the idea that, that uh, you know, in, in Buddhism, they do say that, that everything is uh, impermanent, even the gods. But the, the fall or the death of gods, uh, interestingly enough, begins with a foul odor that they begin to emanate that the other gods notice and start to keep their distance. And they, the fall is, is 
is so profoundly agonizing because it was something that that they had forgotten would happen to them. They'd been alive for so long. So I think fame, uh, you know, another Buddhist um, story that I have talked about before, there was a, a hermit whose obsession was that he become the the most famous cave hermit in the history of Buddhism. And the Buddhists have said or written that fame is a, a disease or a handicap. The, the lust for fame, the need for fame and attention, then even uh, poverty or disease or physical disease. So it's very difficult to erase the self, you know, or to even have the notion that erasing the self will provide some kind of transcendence. But for, for you know, Roger Orr, really, I share this belief with him, felt that all, all is an illusion. So great wealth and great poverty are, are just different sides of the illusion coin. And fame and anonymity are the, the different sides of the illusion coin. In other words, there will come a time when one hopefully understands that, that fame means nothing and is not helpful in any way unless the self is erased. Then it, it becomes something that you can have fun with, but you can't have fun with something that is riding your back, you know, with its claws sunk sunk in deep. So to get to your like creative trajectory, you're you know, you're driving an ambulance, you're driving a limousine, you're working in bookstores, and then you get to like how do you get to writing a book? Well, you had mentioned, uh, you know, I'd always written, uh, I, uh, from 11 years old, I was doing, um, imitations of O. Henry stories or Bret Hart, who I loved maybe, uh, uh, I, I liked Ray Bradbury as well, you know, as a young boy. And I was uh, having a lot of issues uh, uh, of fear that I would never be able to write a novel. You know, I was stealing books, you know, by the armful from the bookstores, and I had a beautiful little library, and I was in agony because I thought, this is impossible. So I, I wrote short stories and wasn't entirely satisfied with them. And then I read some of Kafka's prose poems, and I was shocked that Kafka had written prose poems because I was, of course, familiar with his his stories. But I was fo so focused on novels that I just considered Kafka to be a novelist, something that I would it was impossible for me to affect. But something about the the prose poems that that he didn't care where they were going that that just opened a, a door for me. And I began to, to do stories and, 
And then Pat Hobby stories by Fitzgerald were so interesting to me because they were so funny and so bleak, so dark, and yet hilarious. And even more moving to me that that many were published posthumously, you know, in and I think Esquire, because he was forgotten and struggling at, at that point. So I I wanted to write my version of the Pat Hobby stories, but bring them much further than than Fitzgerald's time would have allowed and perhaps Fitzgerald's inclinations. You know, my stories end in pedophilia and disfigurement and, you know, so I wrote Force Majeure, the Bud Wiggins stories, uh, instead of the Pat Hobby stories. And I, I think literally I had typed them and sent them around to friends and I got a wonderful response from them. And a friend of mine, uh, Cotty Chubb, said uh, that he would do a desktop publication of those stories, which he did. And we sold them out of Book Soup. And I think we we sold a thousand of them out of Book Soup. And I got a book deal with Random House based on those. And uh, the it was to, to convert that those short stories into a novel. And then I was off and running, you know. But now I really do feel that I'm I'm writing posthumously. My books are completely ignored at this point, and there's no self-pity in it at all for me. You know, I, I got a tremendous amount of attention for my books early on, and this the last book that I wrote, The Marvel Universe, was canceled because of, quote, problematic language, and I released it into the public domain. Just anyone can download it and print it out and change it, do whatever they like with it. And Roar, which is an apotheosis of my work, not a single review, not a single review. And I, I'm saying this because it is all an illusion. You know, it ties into what we've been talking about. For me to to cry my eyes out that it is as it is, is as nuts as me jumping for joy uh, at the wonderful review. You know what I mean? It, it it all is a wash, you know, and so I'm. I, it's it's something I'm observing now, you know, and it's it's of note and of interest to me. I'm extremely grateful that that I found Arcade, who's a kind of fearless uh, publisher, Tony Lyons, and uh, has a a a respect for my work, and gratified that. Uh, I'm able to be published, you know, regardless of sales and 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 trends, uh, you know. Um, and and I'm not saying that I'm not reviewed because my my books are problematic, etc. I think the the books are 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 ignored, so they're they're not they don't even get to that point where someone objects to something. You know what I mean? And that's just uh, that just is, you know. It has nothing to do with me nothing to do with my work. It just is. There's no explaining uh, of it. It's it's what uh, Ramesh Balsekara, this Indian um, uh, uh, man of knowledge, said is a happening. It's nothing more than a happening. So that's part of the training to get the self out of the way. You know, it, 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 it can put a dent in your mood. You know, that's the phrase Leonard Cohen used when he found out that he'd been you know, his personal manager had stolen millions of dollars from him. But if it does more than put a dent in your mood, then 
you've got to do something about that because all is illusion and um, fame, you know, the great wealth, self-pity over lack of fame or, or great wealth. It is all a fantasy. It's all a fiction. So in that way, like Svetlana Aleksevich being awarded, awarded the Nobel for literature, it, everything merges. Uh, and, and so that, that's where I'm at now, moving through this life with as much equanimity as, as I can find. And you find that equanimity by getting out of the way not putting so much emphasis on identity. Bruce Wagner, Hollywood writer, Hollywood satirist. Uh, Bruce Wagner, formerly acclaimed. Bruce Wagner, now ignored. These are all constructs, you know, and they all come from self and vanity and ego, you know. So you simply do your best work, whatever that work is, you know. I can... I can wash dishes and have the same satisfaction that I have when I'm uh, in the middle of, of writing a, a, a paragraph because the self is gone. So the, the, with the self gone, there's no goal line. You know, there's no race to win. And that's where you, you, you find peace. Okay. So the things that you're talking about have a spiritual, like a spiritual air to them, to me. And that's definitely something that your work, not just Roar, but all of your work is suffused with. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, you know, I'm kind of Buddhish uh, is the way I put it, you know, like, so I responded very much to a lot of the stuff that you've been talking about in this conversation, but also in your books. And I'm curious to know a little bit about that part of your life. Like, you know, I feel like Los Angeles, maybe one of the things that I like about it so much is that amid the great mess of it, I've lived here 20 years, so I'm from the Midwest, but have made this my home. But one of the things that maybe it doesn't get as much credit for as a virtue is the fact that it is a kind of spiritual laboratory. It's a wide open place in a lot of respects, at least from my perspective, coming from a more cloistered maybe environment. Uh, you know, we're, we're both from Wisconsin originally, I realize. Yes, from, you're Milwaukee, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's more of like a Catholic, narrow, square, you know, by comparison, Los Angeles feels like a place where you can really experiment in that regard. And I'm just wondering what your path has been like. I, I, I spent about 10 years with Carlos Castaneda and he would always say that energetically, the Valley of Los Angeles is very similar to the Valley of Mexico. So it's no uh, mistake to me, uh, you know, all the, the, the jokes aside about Los Angeles being a, a potpourri of New Age bullshit, that Leonard Cohen winds up here that Carlos Castaneda lived much of his life here. Uh, these things all make sense to me. So for me, I think perhaps with my uh, obsession about writing about the very worst parts uh, of myself and humanity to this endless confront confrontation in my work with what uh, we are capable of, the 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 horrors and the, and the sacred. Uh, and 
the the self is the architect of our destruction. So I think I was um, possessed with um, with understanding more about that and how to how how can I erase or minimalize self, at least give it a small s, and and what would that how would that affect my my life, and so these aspirations one has to erase the self you'll be you'll be doing that, I'll be doing that on my deathbed and failing. Uh, and, but that's, there's something glorious about that too, you know, because for me, failure has always been, you know, there, there's the, the image of those who are uh, on their knees in a cathedral, right? And it's that divine kind of acquiescence to the unknown that that we consider failure you know, the culture considers failure the culture doesn't understand the word acquiescence they equate it with passivity or masochism in a way because this culture is about winning you know so for me humility is is the thing that that has captivated me how uh, out of reach it is for for humankind you know and and only seemingly available in in times of 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 near fatality or the death experience but even so i've known people that have been had horrific things happen to them and it, it and it didn't humble them at all it almost inflamed the self you know but I digress. So just so I, uh, my listeners can get a sense of trajectory, like you're raised Jewish, correct? You had a bar mitzvah, I think I read about. I did, but but it was very Beverly Hills Jewish. Uh, you know, we were, you, you'd be fancy bar mitzvahs, hand-delivered invitations, scrawled on miniature Torahs. And then my bar mitzvah was at the Friars Club. And Tina Louise from Gilligan's Island was one of the guests, you know, I mean, and we had a Christmas tree, you know, I mean, that's, that's how Jewish we were. So how do you, how do you get from there to like hanging with Carlos Castaneda and uh, having this Buddhist uh, education? I don't know if you'd call it hanging with, <laughs> I'm like, you know, I, I just go, I'm, I don't consider myself a Buddhist at all. I just go to the things that, interests me you know take what you take what you like and leave the rest so anything with a heart a castaneda talked about this the path with heart you know um it's a famous quote of his you 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 select the path with heart but what is not included usually in the ta- in the in the replication of that quote is all paths lead nowhere because that's people interpret that as being nihilistic it, the human being, the mind is is insane. So what he was saying is all illusion. So you go with the path of heart. You know, the you can say that the the all is illusion, but that that one of those paths has a heart is a great illusion. So I always want to go with the great illusion. You know. So what do you what do you 
see for yourself creatively going forward, or do you have a vision of what you have yet to accomplish? I'm, um, you know, I have two books that I'm going to be working on for the same publisher. One is called The Met Ball. It's going to be a, an oral history of a uh, a woman that gets disinvited from Anna Wintour's Met Ball and, and decides to have one on the West Coast on the same night as the one on the East Coast. And then I'm going to do a book very close to the Sufi tales and the supernatural Japanese tales of Lafcadio Hearn. So that will be um, a kind of... Um, uh, Sufi stories that take place in Hollywood. Those are what I'm working on. There was an adaptation of a book I wrote called I Met Someone that was directed by Mike Figgis that might come out next year. But all in all, I'm like everyone else, you know, uh, at this point. What we wake up to is, uh, is, of, is of great interest in that uh, will we... Will we, this identity theft that happened to me is, I think, a kind of pandemic now. Uh, I don't mean the literal identity theft, but in a sense, which I think is a wonderful thing, everything that we expected, that we would have a long and happy, secure life, is being challenged, you know, moment by moment. Not just through cancel culture, no, but through the potential that that digital currency will arrive and we will have nothing at all, or or it will be we will easily be robbed of whatever we thought we had. Events, um, COVID events, but on a much worse scale, etc. So I think that that the best of the worst times is the status quo is being completely demolished. And I'm all for that. So I don't really feel that this is the darkest of times. You know, I feel the darkest of times are there at always. And sometimes they're just not, they're, they're not illuminated, you know. So now there's um, a, a spotlight uh, on the darkness. And I think it's a good thing. Well, last thing I want to say, like kind of a random aside, is that you had a cameo in one of these movies of, from my youth that was huge for me. <laughs> and as I was oh, researching- Oh, the was it? Yeah, the, the One Crazy Summer. Yeah. That movie. Is it Savage Steve Holland? Is that who directed it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like Better Off Dead, One Crazy Summer, the kind of John Cusack you know, constellation, and John Cusack who stars in Maps to the Stars. Uh, your, you know, your film with David Cronenberg, but anyway, just one of those movies I watched a million times as a kid on TV. And as I was researching, I re you know, I read that you had had a cameo in it and it suddenly clicked and I almost jumped out of my seat. I was like, Oh my God, that he was the guy listening to the radio in one, in one crazy summer. Just like, so how did that even happen? Another lifetime. Um, I'm not sure if I had written one of the nightmare on Elm streets yet. I don't know. I needed money. And it, of course, I worked that into my Bud Wiggins stories, I think Force Majeure. I'm having a hard time remembering. And I, I ultimately, I had to, I had to have them write me out. I, I was having kind of a nervous breakdown. One of those movies we were shooting in Vancouver. The radio one might have been shot 
on the East Coast. Um, it's like Nantucket or something, right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, the I I <laughs> I don't you know I was making you you were got you got good money for this sort of stuff for me back then, but I was losing my mind. You know, uh, it was just um, it was awful you know um but maybe useful for the role because that character seemed to be hanging on by a thread <laughs> no not no it, it wasn't it, that was the it was all what i my performance was was um you know i think of the blue angel you know where he go the professor goes mad it was just so embarrassing and i was on autopilot i just it, i wasn't drawing it wasn't method acting you know what i mean <laughs> right and um so I, I, it, 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 but I'm, you know, I used to think, oh, this is so embarrassing. And, and now at this age that I'm at, I'm, I'm happy it was memorialized, you know, because it, 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 it's doesn't, it just doesn't mean anything. And it, it, you know, it's not a time I remember very well. But I'm glad you enjoyed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I loved it. You know, to me, you're part of my little like personal, you know, movie history or something for some reason those movies yeah. are really sticky for me and i gotta say yeah. i gotta say uh, in closing that you know prepping for this conversation distinguished itself uh, you know i've done hundreds of these but reading about you and the life that you've lived or the lives that you lived you've led an interesting life i don't know if you see it that way do you see it that way i don't because i see my life through my books that I have only existed through my books. That's how I see it. I know that that is, I'm not sticking to that story. Do you know what I mean? But, uh, and I do understand what you are saying. Others have said that to me, but I've met people that have led to me far more interesting lives. And my life has been completely in my head and is becoming more and more that way. So that's how I see it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, a lot of solitude and uh, obsessive craft work and certain aspirations toward the sacred. That's how I see it. You know, now you're making me think of another thing I meant to ask you is that in addition to having the sense of, wow, this guy's led a really interesting life and has found a way to materialize it in his books and mythologize it, uh, is that you really seem to have a kind of steel trap memory and like a pretty vast cultural knowledge. You know, it's definitely an evidence in Roar. Like there's so many references and Easter eggs. I probably missed half of them, you know, but there's a lot in the book. And I would see some of them and be like, wow, okay. So he's there and, you know, he's kind of... Uh, making allusions to a lot of different things like the myth of Tiresias and, you know, all this different stuff. And I'm curious mm. to know a little bit about your, your media and literary diet, you know, and how much research you had to do, or if all this stuff is just kind of accumulated and was there, but like, what is, what is Bruce Wagner's like reading life look like? What does your media diet look like? I I have a kind of, disorder when it comes to reading. I don't read very quickly or very well. So now um, I tend to focus on books that are fueling or funding my next work. So I'm rereading Lafcadio Hearn. I'm um, rereading Sufi Tales. 
I have certain books that that give me great comfort. One of them is Rudyard Kipling's book, Kim. So there, there are certain books I keep almost as a talisman uh, nearby. My diet, in terms of film, uh, I can uh, go from tentpole blockbuster movies that I enjoy and, and help me turn my head off. I saw Tar recently. So I, I will see art films, but it is really shrunken. When I watch television, I watch Deadliest Catch, the the Crab Fisher uh, show. I watch Shark Tank. You know, I'll watch old movies, which are always glorious. But all in all, I, I really spend most of my time staring into space, you know, <laughs> and uh, in that fluish period where before one actually writes that first sentence or paragraph. You're familiar with this, I, I know. I play video games, you know, the casino, you know, they don't involve money. I can literally do that seven hours a day. I, I'm just a, a kind of um, drooling, empty person a lot of the time. And yet something's coming. You have that sense, something's coming, you know. And we know that it is, you know. So that's, you know, in terms of the book, I reached out internet and of course used my own knowledge and personal experiences, but you find strange, happy coincidences in the details of a person's biography, things that you had almost presaged in, in your thoughts and in the book itself that turn out to be true or variations of what you've written all is illusion, you know? So you're, you're creating things that are, already are, you know, and then things happen in the real world that are, are extensions of things you've written about before. So it's one hand washes the other, you know. Well, I've really enjoyed talking with you. I was very impressed with this book. I also laughed out loud a lot while reading it, which is oh, not... very happy about that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it is truly... Uh, hilarious what you do here. Have you ever gotten into trouble with celebrities who you depict fictionally in one of your books? Has anybody ever taken umbrage that you know about? Um, once someone took umbrage um, over something I'd written about a friend, the friend himself never said anything to me. You know, uh, this is Stephen Fry again, recently said that um, the only thing worse than than being a character in a Bruce Wagner novel is not being a character in a Bruce <laughs> Wagner novel. Very generous of him and kind. and and But I generally don't go after celebrities. I mean, Michael Douglas, when he had cancer, I, I wrote extensively about him in Dead Stars with, I thought, kindness. Same thing with Caitlyn Jenner. I, I'm just... It, it's that to me is pointless. You know, if I'm going to write about someone real, then I want to write about that person in a way that, that is a moving to, to at least to me, if not the reader, I have no, no, it doesn't interest me at all to do a send up, you know, or an exaggeration of, of a real person, you know, it just wouldn't occur to me.
uh, and it's rather hateful, you know. Mm-hmm. So I really haven't had too much of that, you know. I remember one of my books, I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was not Laura Linney, but who's the Laura that, that was in David Lynch's? Laura um, Dern. Yeah, maybe it was Laura Dern. I had one scene where she was seeing a shrink. Someone was seeing a shrink and and waiting to see their shrink. She steps out. And the lawyers in New York said, you can't imply that Laura Dern was seeing a shrink. Even though she's written about it or talked about it in interviews, because the, the publishing rules in New York, this is... 30 years ago, are such that you can't imply that a, a real person has issues with their psychiatric, just madness. And it may not have even been Laura Dern, I should say that now. But little tiny things like that. But I've never I've never had an issue uh, with that. You know, no one's ever sued me. I wish they would. <laughs> be great publicity, right? <laughs> It would be publicity. That's right. That's right. Which is something that's foreign to me now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you and me both. Uh, I uh, I could talk to you all day. I mean, there's there's a lot to get to. We covered at least some of it, and uh, I just congratulate you on this book, and I appreciate the opportunity to take up some of your time and pick your brain, and I wish you well on the next two books. Well, I I feel the same with you. I'm I'm grateful and 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 give a shout out to Jerry Stahl for uh, having uh, told me what a wonderful time he had with you. And um, I hope we, we meet. Yeah, I mean, we're both here, you know, so hopefully one day we get to cross paths. I've been trying to get Jerry out for coffee, so maybe we could do something and get together and hang out. I'm down. All right, Bruce, thank you so much once again. Thank you, Brad, really appreciate it. Okay, everybody, there we have it. That was Bruce Wagner, author of the new novel, Roar, American Master, available now from Arcade Publishing. If you want to find Bruce Wagner on the internet, his website is brucewagner.la. Again, the book is called Roar, American Master. Go get your copy right away. If you like American cultural history, if you like entertainment culture, if you like oral histories, if that's your thing, if you like reading oral histories, get your hands on this book. It is a wild ride and it is so funny. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Don't forget to show your support for this show. Tip your server at patreon.com slash other PPL pod for as little as $1 a month. Help keep this thing rolling. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you would like to receive my weekly once a week email newsletter, it's free. Go sign up for that at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. If you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate this program and review this program wherever you listen to this program. So Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever it is, give the show a rating. If it's possible to write a review, write a quick review. That helps. The Other People Archive is up on YouTube. There's an Other People YouTube channel. You know this, right? The entire archive is up on YouTube. Search for the show by name, Other PPL. And when you get there, subscribe to the channel. Hit the subscribe button. It's free. If you want to watch the highlights, you can watch the highlights, the video highlights of each episode over at TikTok. You can also do that on the Other People Instagram page. Likewise, the Other People Show has a Twitter feed. I tweet occasionally these days. 
So if you want to follow the show on Twitter, the handle is at otherppl. The email address for the program is letters at otherppl.com. Send word. Let me know what you think. And if you would like to read my novel, be brief and tell them everything, you can do that uh, right now if you so desire. There's a trade paperback edition, an ebook edition, and an audiobook edition. I narrate the audiobook, and again, the audiobook is on sale 50% off until the end of January. Go to the other people Twitter feed and look for the link. It's somewhere in there. I posted it the other day. All right. So I've been trying to do two episodes a week so far in 2023. I'm just testing it out. I'm going to see if I can keep up this pace. So far, so good. On Wednesday, I'm going to be talking with Matthew Salisis. His new book, The Sense of Wonder, a novel, is out there now generating a lot of buzz. Perhaps you've heard of it. Matthew Salisis returns to the podcast on Wednesday. So stay tuned. I will talk to you very soon. Mm-hmm.